This message by Bob Coughlin, entitled Living Life with the Psalmist, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the 6th General Session at our Worship God 2008 Conference. Bob serves as Director of Worship Development for Sovereign Grace Ministries and as a pastor and worship leader at Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Okay, we have a few minutes, and I'm going to try and preach to you from Psalm 24, if you would open up your Bibles. If you can... Oh, you guys have been so, so good at hanging in there. Uh... Mm, thank you for, for wanting to be here and wanting to grow and wanting to serve your churches more effectively. I trust that the Psalms are more familiar to you now. They're more inviting. They're more exciting. They're more authoritative. They're more central to your understanding of how God wants us to worship Him. We have been fed well, haven't we? I mean, Mark... Craig started us out with letting us know that worship is determined by God, not us, and that it's rooted in and fueled by a true knowledge of God as he has revealed himself to us. It's all about him, who he is and knowing him. We've also learned that the Psalms show us a full range of emotions, that worship isn't meant to be monochromatic, that there's a difference between man-centered emotions which lead us to envy and despair and God-centered emotions, which lead to a singular love for Jesus Christ and eternal joy. Mark Dever opened our eyes, didn't need to see Christ in the Psalms. And I know maybe perhaps for some of you that was like a little, whoo, a big overview. All the messages that have been recorded at this conference are going to be available for free download from Sovereign Grace's website at some point in the near future. (laughs) That was just to say that you can listen to it again uh, to get what he was saying because he, he made us aware that Jesus is found throughout the Psalms and that Jesus said, they testify about me. David Pallison helped us to see how the Psalms help us connect our real life pain, struggles and trials with the sovereign, wise, and loving God. And and then last night we explored how the Psalms affect what we do as we gather. We could all go home right now and I know have plenty to chew on. Plus, you know, we had five seminars to go to. So there's a lot of stuff that we could go home with. But I think there is one more topic to address, which is why I'm speaking this morning. The Psalms don't merely talk about what we do when we gather, do they? The Psalms talk about what we do when we live. They show us how to live. And what I want to talk about this morning is living like a psalmist. There's a difference between acting like a psalmist, putting on the external clothing of a psalmist, copying the actions of a psalmist, trying to sound or look like a psalmist, and actually living like a psalmist having the attitudes and the heart of the psalmist. That's what God's after. That's what God's after in every one of us, no matter what role we play in our church. In the Psalms, we're shown in intimate detail what a relationship with God looks like through challenges and successes, through highs and lows. 
Psalms teach us how to laugh and cry and praise and lament and rejoice and repent before God. They teach us how to live before God. So I want to look at Psalm 24 with you this morning. Could have chosen a number of psalms, but I think this one captures how many of the psalmists think about the way we're to live. David might have written this when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem from Kiriath-Jerim, where, as 1 Samuel 7 tells us, it had remained for 20 years since the Philistines had returned it. Some think the Israelites may have used this psalm to reenact a return from a military victory. We don't know whether, whether David actually composed this for the occasion to bring the ark back or whether it was a reenactment. But that's okay. Because it's going to help us apply this psalm to our lives this morning. So let's read it together. A psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let's ask for God's help. Father, we have heard much, we have learned much, we have fellowship much, we have laughed much, we are tired, we are about to go home. We need your Spirit's help. I need your help to communicate your word clearly and powerfully. We all need your help to listen, to have our minds renewed and our hearts changed through your eternal word. I ask that you would do that for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The psalm is obviously in three sections, and we're going to look at each one in turn that describe what someone who wants to live like a psalmist must do. First thing we must do, we see in verses 1 and 2, is acknowledge God's sovereignty. We must acknowledge God's sovereignty. Sovereignty. Who does the earth belong to? David tells us the earth is the Lord's. How much of the earth is the Lord's? The fullness thereof. Everything. 
Everything is the Lord's. And in case we missed it, we hear again, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world is his and everybody who lives in it. Everything belongs to the Lord. Verse 2 reminds us that God created the world. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It explains why God owns the world. Why does God own the world? He made the world. You make something, you own it. God created the world. He owns it. And it kind of harkens back to the first chapter of Genesis 1-9 when it says, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. God made the rivers. God made the seas. God made the land. God owns everything because he created everything. He is the sovereign king over the world who owns, sustains, and rules everything. This is God's world. Which means... That this world and everything in it is accountable to him. We tend to separate our world into pieces that don't always fit together. We talk about the areas of science and nature and art and music and literature and physics and history and mathematics, morality, government, religion, all these different areas. But everything exists under God's rule. It's governed by one hand for one purpose. And that is to bring glory to God. The earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Some people think this is talking about our responsibility to steward the resources of the earth. The earth is the Lord's. We should take care of it. Maybe it is saying that. We can certainly apply it that way. But I think it's saying much more. When we take these verses in context with the rest of the Psalms that talk about God's rule, we recognize it because God made the world and sustains the world that the whole world is accountable to him. We read in Psalm 33, 8 and 9, let all the earth fear the Lord, which, Greg, which Craig spoke on the first night. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. So all the earth should stand in fear of the Lord. This section of the psalm challenges our limited views of God. God isn't only as big as our perceptions of him. Isn't that good news? Because sometimes we have a very small God. I have a very small God sometimes. That's not how big God is. In fact, God can't even really be measured in human terms. Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? The theme psalm for this conference, 145.3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. I love that. I love to remind myself of that. I love to remind others of that. We will never reach the end of the greatness of our God. 
He owns the world, everything in it. He created it. And we're accountable to him. We always have this temptation to view God through our circumstances and experiences rather than through his revelation to us. And the psalmist recognizes that's not the way it should be. Even though we share our experiences, we share the struggles we're going through, in the end, we know that God rules it all. He's over it. He's the king. Not too long ago, I was reading in the Washington Post a story of how non-Christian religions, even secular humanists, were developing Sunday schools to teach their children their values and beliefs. They were just taking that concept of the Sunday school, which Christians have used for a long time, and applying it to pass on their beliefs. And, and I had this sinking feeling for a moment. Man, maybe we're all just doing our own religious thing. I mean, they seem to be prospering, kind of that Psalm 73 thing. They're just doing their thing. They seem to be doing fine. And that's not the view the psalmist has. God, God's not a local deity. And that, this was huge in the Israelite time period because all the surrounding nations had these, these gods that were gods over different portions, different sections of the world. God is over everything. He's not one choice among the many that are available. His authority isn't restricted to churches or Christians or conferences. He rules it all. He owns it all. When, when we watch or listen to the news, we're hearing about what God rules, what God oversees, and what God owns. When I study law or history or science or music or art in school, I have to view them in light of who God is and what he says. God is king over our losses and triumphs and deaths and diseases and healings and wars and peacetime and floods and fires and tsunamis and earthquakes. He's king over it all, all the time, forever, because he made it all. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell therein. John Steck in the NIV study Bible says this, unquestionably, the supreme kingship of Yahweh, in which he displays his transcendent greatness and goodness, is the most basic metaphor and most pervasive theological concept in the Psalter, as in the Old Testament generally. It provides the fundamental perspective in which man is to view himself the whole creation, events in nature, in history, and the future. Listen to this. The whole creation is his one kingdom. To be a creature in the world is to be a part of his kingdom and under his rule. To be a human being in the world is to be dependent on and responsible to him. To proudly deny that fact is the root of all wickedness, the wickedness that now pervades the world. What size is your God? How big or how small is the God that you worship? Is he only big when we sing to him? Is he only big when he does what you want him to do? Is he he only big when we're surrounded by people who believe everything that we believe? 
He's much bigger. We don't want to limit our views of God. Because when we deny God's authority over the world and His power to sustain us, the Bible says that we're fools. Because apart from Him, we wouldn't exist. Psalm 104, 27 through 30. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. God is king over everything forever. If you want to live like a psalmist, we have to believe that and we have to live like that. He is the only sovereign. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Therefore, it makes sense to discover how we are to relate to him. If he owns everything, if he rules everything, we want to know, well, how do we know him? How do we get to him? And that's exactly what the psalmist turns to in verse 3. And here we're going to learn That to live like a psalmist, we need to pursue God's holiness. We acknowledge God's sovereignty. We need to pursue God's holiness. Who shall ascend the hill of this Lord? The sovereign king, the sovereign ruler. Who shall stand in his holy place? Now, Jerusalem while not on a high mountain, was elevated above the land around it. And it was characteristic of the places where God met with his people in the Old Testament. He'd often meet with his people on a high place, on a mountain. So the question of who shall ascend is a natural one. And standing implies permanence. So the psalmist is asking, how do we get to God and stay there? (laughs) We're not interested in just getting there and then coming back. No, we want to get there and stay there. So who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Psalmist worshipers want to be close to God. We're not not content to admire God from a distance, to talk about him like some theory or or something that is distant and far away and really not tangible or something we can draw close to. We want to be near him. What what David says in Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Psalm 63, Psalm 84, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. You see it throughout the psalm. We want to draw near to the sovereign creator. How do we do it? In verse four, he tells us what kind of individuals What kind of people are worthy to be in the presence of the great creator king? Starts with clean hands. Who shall ascend the hill? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. That means you don't do things that are wrong. We're godly in our actions. We do the right things. He who has a pure heart. This is a different standard. 
We can put on the show of worship, can't we? We can have the clean hands. We can say to everybody, hey, look what I'm doing. But to actually be a worshiper from the heart, that's, that's something different. But then it's just as easy to claim that we have a pure heart and not live like it. So who can ascend? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. One who communes with God must not lift up his soul to what is false. Another translation says empty. The other times that lift up your soul is used in the Psalms, it's always referring to God. So here the psalmist is saying if if, if you lift up your soul to anything else, if you're desiring anything else above God or influenced by anything more than God, you cannot ascend. You cannot stand in the presence. And then it ends by saying, he must never swear deceitfully. We must never lie or represent things in an untruthful way to others. Now, as I was meditating on, on this verse, I realized... I mean, this one verse covers, covers our deeds, our thoughts, our motives, and our words. That's pretty much everything. What we do, what we think, what we say, what we desire, what we are in relationship with God and others, everything about us. And the psalmist here is just saying what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 7. God's worshipers must be holy because he is holy. 1 Peter 1, 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Ethics for the psalmist was never mere morality. Never a matter of just obeying some good rules. And it shouldn't be that way for us either. Our conduct and thoughts, if you want to live like a psalmist, our conduct and thoughts will always be determined by whose we are and who we worship. It's not action separated from motive, from relationship. And because God is the sovereign one over the whole earth, what we do outside our meetings takes on a greater significance. And as the last section challenged our limited views of God, this section challenges our inconsistent views of God. And we've heard this, but oh, how we need to see it. Worship is not simply songs and meetings. It's not about a mood Hear people talk about, well, that's, you know, I, I want to I wanna create a worshipful mood. If you, if you know the Psalms well, you won't say that. A, a, a worshipful mood could be on your knees crying out in anguish for God to remember you. I don't think it'd sell very many, but the Bible seems to be doing okay. Wouldn't sell many in today's contemporary music culture. But that's not what we're basing our idea of what worship is on. We're getting it from God's Word. Worship is not about songs, musical events, 
or emotions. Worship is about the way we live our lives, the thoughts we think, the words we say. And no amount of enthusiastic singing or consistent attendance at meetings makes up for unholy living. Our lives are meant to draw attention to the greatness of God as much as our songs. We don't want to stop singing passionate songs. We just want to start living passionate lives. We want to bring the passion of our songs into our lives. So let's look at this list again. Clean hands. Who can ascend? Who can stand? Well, you have to have clean hands. It's talking about the way we relate to our spouses, our friends, our children. Similar to what Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2.8, that we're to lift up holy hands. But we're to have a pure heart as well. Not like Pilate, who washed his hands and said he was innocent of the blood of Jesus after declaring three times that Jesus was innocent. No, our hearts must be free from sins like envy, anger, pride, lust, impatience. We aren't to lift our souls to what is false and empty. The passing temporary pleasures that the world is so enamored with. Fame, amusements, entertainment, sex, possessions, money. Those things aren't to, aren't to grab our souls. We're not to lift up our souls to them and say, Oh, you will satisfy. You will give me what I desire. Oh, great computer screen. Oh, great internet. Oh, great eBay. You will give me what I've so longed for. No, it won't. We're not to lift up our souls to what is false and empty. And we're to love the truth. It's convicting. It's humbling to read those that verse and think, that's the person who can ascend the hill of the Lord. And stand in its holy place. But the psalmist promises. He said, verse 5, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, now what's being said here? What, who can live like that? Is this an example of living by the law to gain a right standing before God? Well, you've been taught well enough here and probably at your churches at home to know that's not what it's saying. But but what is it saying? Well, without in any way minimizing God's call for us to live holy lives, God is saying that he himself will and must provide it for us. Righteousness, the word righteousness, In verse 5, he will receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. can also be translated vindication. It's a legal term that indicates a person has fulfilled the expectations of justice. He's done what he's supposed to do. But in this case, it's given to an individual by the God of his salvation. The God who has saved him. We aren't ascending the hill of the Lord or standing in his presence on our own merit. The clean hands and pure heart are the fruit 
of God's work in us, his justifying and sanctifying grace. And we see the doctrines of grace right here in Psalm 24. All the glory for having clean hands and a pure heart, for not lifting up our souls to what is false and not swearing deceitfully. All the glory for that goes to the Lord, as we'll see in the final part of the psalm. Charles Spurgeon commented commented on this passage. It must not be supposed that the persons who are thus described by their inward and outward holiness are saved by the merit of their works. But their works are the evidences by which they are known. The present verse shows that in the saints, grace reigns and grace alone. It's like the prayer from the Valley of Vision where he asks that I may know how to gain relief from a guilty conscience without feeling reconciled to my imperfections. Jesus provides relief from a guilty conscience, but he never wants us to feel satisfied or content with our sins. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the God of Jacob. How kind of God, and I love these little little pieces that, that demonstrate the Lord's care for our souls. How kind of the Lord to remind us of his association with a man who is so much like us, Jacob, the deceiver, but the one whom God identifies himself with and chose to bless and who was able to say, I have seen the face of God. We are part of this generation. We're reminded that we are part of God's people, that out of all the peoples on the earth, God has chosen a particular people to proclaim his truth, to demonstrate his love, and to live out all of life under his gracious reign. We are not doing this alone. We are his people. The psalmist has addressed how we come to God. Now he's about to proclaim how God has come to us. And if we want to live like a psalmist, we need to learn to celebrate God's victory. To celebrate God's victory. Now, this is an odd transition. We're tracking the earth is the Lord's who shall ascend. Clean hands, pure heart. He will receive blessing. Such is the generation. Lift up your heads, O gates. Wait a minute, where the gates come from? There's no gates in here. I didn't see any gates in song before. Now, if someone had submitted to me, said, submitted this to me as a song, I would say, you know, humbly and gently, of course, um, you know, bro, that, that, that's like a turn. That's like, that's like out of left field. I mean, that, that's like from nowhere. You haven't said anything about gates and doors and all of a sudden we're like, you talk about gates and doors and, and it's the way you end it. And it's just not very good. What, you know, maybe you could, I mean, two things you could do. You work gates and doors in earlier or. Or maybe you could just like continue that flow before, maybe something, something else about clean hands, you know, righteousness and stuff. You know, fortunately, God doesn't come to us for recommendations <laughs> on how, the, how his words should be written. We want the Psalms to read us. And, and that is only possible as we spend time digging in them. 
If we read God's word quickly, shallowly, we will not. We will just be reading God's word. God's word won't be reading us. I want God's word to read me and tell me what I need to change, what God wants to change in me. This final section describes the entrance of Yahweh, the gracious king, the sovereign king, into the gates of Jerusalem. By his presence, God is bringing blessing, victory, and salvation to his people. Gates are metaphorically lifting up their heads in expectation of the arrival of the king after a triumph in battle. Now, whether these are the gates of the temple or the ancient doors of Jerusalem or a symbolic reference to the people, we're not sure. But it's clear that God is coming to his holy city, Jerusalem, triumphant and victorious. He is the king. He is the Lord. And every time you see Lord capitalized in your Bible, it, it is Yahweh. It's referring to Yahweh, God's name that he gave to his covenant people. This is who is returning from battle, mighty and victorious. And we can imagine the scene of David bringing the ark up from Obed-Edom's house in First Chronicles 15. And I want us to, to sound this out as, as it might have been said at that point. Dividing us up into two sections. Maybe uh, this is section one and you all are section two. And we're going to read the, these final verses, verse seven, together. And I want to, to proclaim it. Section one, section two. Can we have that up on the screen? Section one. Here we go. Lift up your gates. Lift up. Amen. He is the king. He is the king. The king is none other than Yahweh, the maker and ruler of all, the one who owns everything, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is strong and mighty in battle. He is the Lord of hosts. But Israel must have struggled with this and with other Psalms as they were defeated by foreign nations. As the temple was destroyed and they were deported to Babylon. Even when they returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, there must have been questions in their minds and struggles in their hearts. Is this what the Lord's victory looks like? Has the king of glory come in? If so, when? Where is he? If he's strong and mighty, why are we suffering? And why don't we sense his presence? You might be asking the same questions about your life. If God is mighty in battle, why am I going through what I'm going through? Why do I have this disease? Why are my children rebelling? Why did I lose my job? Why isn't this relationship working out? Why am I suffering? Why did my child die? Why did my husband leave me? Where's the Lord mighty 
and victorious. God never intended us to limit the meaning of these verses to what took place in ancient Israel. We start there, but we don't end there. These verses don't simply refer to David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. There was another time, hundreds of years later, when a king of glory entered Jerusalem. His name was Jesus. And in Matthew 21, 9, we read, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Their answer was right. But it was incomplete. They didn't know the full answer. And it was here all the time in Psalm 24. And this section challenges our incomplete views of God. Jewish tradition says that Psalm 24 was typically recited on the first day of each week. And as Jesus was entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday in the passage we just read, the priests may well have been intoning from inside the temple, who is this king of glory? That king of glory went on to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, tells us in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Through his death and resurrection, he revealed himself as the Lord of hosts, strong and mighty. He is the king of glory. Which leads us to a third and final scene to which this, these verses can be applied. And that is the king of glory entering the heavenly Jerusalem. For centuries, the church has read Psalm 24 on Ascension Sunday. And to the early Christians, it represented the cries of heaven as the God-man, Jesus Christ, had overcome the powers of darkness and redeemed a people for God's very own possession from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you can see the host of heaven there as Jesus is coming. He has lived a righteous life. He has died an atoning death. He has risen victoriously from the grave. And now he is ascending to his Father's right hand. And the hosts of heaven are crying out, Who? Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty and battle. Well, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Jesus Christ. Fast forward. To the time when Jesus has fulfilled all his father sent him to do. It was the ultimate battle. 
and the ultimate triumph. He alone, of all those who have ever lived, deserves the right to be called the King of Glory. And we can think that worship is ultimately about what we do here what we accomplish, what we achieve, what we experience, what we express. We can live with a mindset that God is depending on us to ultimately pull things off. He's not. He's not depending on us, and it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Worship is about celebrating what God has accomplished through our great King, Jesus. In Jesus... We have the representative man, our representative, who truly has clean hands and a pure heart, who has never lifted his soul to what is false or sworn deceitfully. And it's because of what he has accomplished that any of us can ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. It's because he has defeated death. He has paid our debt. He has defeated our enemies. He has suffered in our place. He has ransomed us from hell. He has reconciled us to God so that we can be counted among the worshipers of God. And if we're to live like a psalmist, we must keep our eyes steadfastly fixed on the King of glory who has triumphed once and for all. And we share in his triumph. We share in his victory. So let us not settle for limited, inconsistent, and incomplete views of worship or the God we worship. God has made it possible for every one of us to live like a psalmist. Confident in God's sovereignty, pursuing God's holiness, and rejoicing in the victory of our great Redeemer. There may be some here who you wonder about your life. You made yourself by God's standards and, and you come up short. You think, I'll never be able to ascend the hill of the Lord. I'll never be able to stand in the holy place. And you're right. You're right. Don't fight that thought. Agree with it. But we have one who did. We have one who did ascend the hill of the Lord. We have one who does stand in the holy place. And through faith in him, we receive the benefits of his victory. So whatever you go back to, whatever you return to at home, whatever situations you're facing, dealing with, go back with this confidence. You know the king of glory. And he's not just king here. He's king everywhere. He's king everywhere. He's king in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, England, Alaska, Mexico, Canada, China, Asia. He's king everywhere. He's the king. And we know him. And we've been called to live for his glory. So I want to end the conference just by praying that we, by God's grace, would go from here not, not seeking to prove anything, but simply becoming more and more in awe of the fact that God has called us for 
for his purposes, for his glory, to live for him through Jesus, his son. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your amazing love for unworthy sinners, those who have rebelled against you, those who would never have come to you if you had not come to us. We thank you that we know the King of glory, that you are strong and mighty. And regardless of how our situation looks right now, we have absolute confidence that the battle has been won. That our great King, Jesus, sits on the throne. Undisturbed by the nations raging and the fools mocking, you will have your way. Your plans will not be thwarted. And so, Father, use our ransomed lives in any way you choose. And may our boast forever be our only hope, our only boast, our only life is you. We thank you for how you have met us here. We pray for safety as we travel home and great joy as we return to the task of serving those in our local churches. We thank you for the privilege of doing it. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message by Bob Coughlin, which was given at our Worship God 2008 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.